My name's Rusty. I used to be red-headed, but I never was big. <laughs> and I always wanted to be. It's my continuing resentment. I always wanted to be big. And Rusty is the legal name, so I can't do anything about it at this point. I tell people my family was expecting a puppy. And we have to go on that premise. My parents were expecting a puppy, and my name is legally Rusty, and I have to accept that I'll never be big. I want to thank the committee for inviting me up here. I'm having a good time. I had a splendid trip. I did come on a different plane than my luggage, but I had a nice trip, and I trust that it did too. <laughs> it takes real talent to lose your luggage between Denver and Jasper, but they did it. I'm really having a good time here, and I'm having a better time since I've learned how to get to the meeting. I have a most beautiful room upstairs. In fact, I have a suite. If there is anybody here with no place to stay, I've got room for six up there. It's wonderful. It's absolutely lovely, but I had to learn how to get here without coming down those stairs that go down to the lobby. You know, that's a beautiful staircase that I keep thinking. I think, oh, hello, darling. <laughs> Come on down the stairs. I'm glad to be at this meeting, and I've been glad to be at every Al-Anon meeting I've ever been to, except the first one. Yeah. You weren't either, huh? I got here in the 60s, and you might remember the 60s, or if you have any impression of the 60s, you probably think of it as a time of fairly benign drugs, lots of easy sex, and long-haired women, and it certainly was that. Long-haired men, too. It certainly was that, but it was something else, too. You know, those kids had to have something to rebel against, and that was the lovely, respectable ladies. And my first Al-Anon meeting that I ever went to was a group of very respectable ladies. They largely had purple hair, shellacked in beehive shapes on the tops of their heads, and they had a lot of dead and fake flowers stuck in the beehives at various times. And places, and I walked into that room, and I did not feel that I had reached my spiritual home. <laughs> I, of course, came to that room physically, mentally, spiritually bankrupt, almost, almost financially bankrupt in addition, but I didn't come empty-handed. I came bringing a lot of baggage that I'd acquired in the earlier part of my life. And I stayed in that room. I do not know what was said at my first meeting. Is For all I know, it was in Swahili. I have no idea what they talked about. But they loved me in that room, and they accepted me, and they understood me. And no one had ever done that anywhere that I had ever been before. And for a long time, I didn't come here to get well, because I didn't know I was supposed to. I just came because it didn't hurt for an hour. And I was deceptive for an hour. Now, I did not grow up in the kind of home that I often hear about these days in the program. None of those horror things were true in my family. But I grew up in New England. New England is not a place. It's a state of mind and a set of rules. And it does not matter where you live. You can grow up in New England. And I did. We had many, many rules. You know, in New England, 
You can't eat beans on Tuesday? I could it's against the law, but you must eat them on Saturday. I mean, that is firm. Baked beans and brown bread on Saturday night and kidney pies for Sunday breakfast. If you don't like kidney pies, tough, that's the rule. Uh, there were many, many rules. Some of them were very good rules. Some of them were just foolish rules. Never wear diamonds in the morning like we had diamonds. <laughs> All kinds of, of that kind of rule, but there were also they were the big rules. And the big rules are that you are never beholden to anybody. You are never in anyone's debt. That is an absolute rule. It's right up there with you never spend money from your principal. Those are the two big rules in moving. And, and then there are secrets. Now, we have secrets in my family. We didn't have any mad uncles in chains in the attic or any headless bodies behind the bricks in the basement. We kept secrets because they were secrets. You see, if we talked about things in our family that were good, then we were bragging, and that's very tacky. And if we said there were any, any, ever even implied that anything was wrong in our family, well, then people would offer us sympathy and want to help, and we'd be beholden, and that would be very, very dangerous, because then those people could call their death at any time, and you never knew what kind of trouble you got into. And the other reason we kept secrets was that we were very, very ordinary middle-class people. And we certainly did not want the neighbors to find that out. <laughs> and so it was always necessary to act as if we were a little richer and a little smarter and a little nicer than we really were. Because we could not possibly be ordinary. And we were very ordinary. In our family, everyone drank. I have never, I've been too young to drink coffee. I've never been too young to drink alcohol. The baby's nipples were soaked, you know, like pacifiers, were soaked in brandy while the baby was teething, and the baby easily went to sleep. Sometimes it was hard to wake them up, but they went to sleep. <laughs> and in case you think we were just a bunch of cold-hearted perverts in the northwest corner of the country, until about five years ago, that was standard treatment in every pediatric hospital in the United States. That was what was given to babies to help them through pain and for sleep. So we were not quite as bad as we sounded. Now, I was the oldest in that family, and I tell you, there was no alcoholism. Alcohol was served with meals. We knew how to drink. In my part of New England, it's necessary to drink. We need to know how to drink, but being drunk is very tacky. We drink, we do not get drunk. We hold our liquor like ladies and gentlemen, and we appreciate the taste of fine liquor. <laughs> it's not a good start to get into alcoholism. I grew up in that family, and I married when I was 17. Nothing on earth escaped me as much as to say that I got married at 17 and still in high school. Because I thought I was pregnant. I thought I was pregnant because I thought you got pregnant from kissing with your mouth open. <laughs> In my junior high school, they were not giving out condoms. 
That marriage was very short-lived. My husband was killed in a plane crash in six weeks after we were married. And I, I wanted to mourn him. I really did. But I was 17 and I wanted to be alive. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to go dance in the moonlight. I wanted to do all those things. And so I mourned him. I went to Gary Garfield movies and did what she did. I thought I was mourning as long as I did what the best movie stars did when they were supposed to be in mourning. But really, I wanted to get on with life. I wanted to be happy. I was 17. I went off to school, and I was having a wonderful time in school. I uh, did well in school. It was one of the requirements in my family. It was necessary to be smart, and I, so I always did well in school. But I always had a good time in school, too. But my dad had always been very supportive, and my dad said you could be president of the United States, General Motors, or anything else you wanted to, whether you were female or not. But offstage, in my generation, in my part of the world, there was always a chorus made up of mothers and aunts from society in general that said, well, you probably could, but it wouldn't count unless you were a wife and mother. So I decided that probably that's what I ought to get on with and do. I finished college. No, I didn't finish. I, I was still in college when I married. Um, and I started to interview people for the position of Rusty's husband. <laughs> there were surprisingly few applicants considering the fringe package. Uh, I chose a man who had the most beautiful eyebrows you ever saw. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, but I was 20. At 20, you fall in love with eyebrows. <laughs> At 30, you don't. <laughs> and he came from a family that was not like us. I mean, in the family that he came from, people saw little animals that were not visible to other people and occasionally they found it necessary to take a shot at one of them. Uh, it was not like us. I had always been told that, that I could, you know, I would be comfortable with people like us and people like us were dreadfully dull. We never raised our voices. We never partied when it was time to go to work the next morning. We were well-disciplined, well-behaved people. I, of course, when I was a little kid, I heard about God. I went to church. I have to tell you, I was not impressed with God. In the first place, they kept him in a little box, and they only let him out of the box on Sunday morning when we came to church, and I thought he ought to be grateful to get out of the box. But in never was, he was always cross about something. He was always just irritable, and it was not man's inhumanity. The man that disturbed him, he was always mad about petty little stuff that wasn't worth the trouble. And he also, the deck was stacked in his favor. It was very unfair. My daddy got um, paid on the 1st and the 15th, and I got my allowance on the 2nd and the 16th. And it was explained to me, and the reason you have to understand about money, it's important. It's it's not God, but it sort of sits on the right hand, you know? <laughs> and so I got my allowance, some of which had to go to long-term savings like college. Some of it had to go to short-term savings like if your bike needs a new seat. 
and the rest you were free to spend on whatever foolishness came to mind. But if you ran out of money, that was tough. You were out of money until next payday, and neither tears nor begging nor sighs or anything else moved that you had to learn to handle your money. But God ran out of money all the time. And if you never had anything in long-term savings, you never figured out that the paint would wear out on this building. You never had to do any of that. They always passed a special collection to bail them out. I thought it was dreadful. <laughs> I wanted nothing to do with him, and I didn't really need him because I had my daddy, and my dad put the sun in motion and placed the stars in their spots in the planet, in the, in the universe, and I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a man, just like my daddy. <laughs> I don't mean that I wanted to go to Trinidad. That's not why I live in Colorado. I haven't been to Trinidad, which in case you don't know, it's the sex change capital of the world. <laughs> I haven't been down there. I did want to come back and tell you my name's really Russell. <laughs> but I did want to do what my dad did, which was be in charge of everything. In our house, if I called and said, can I stay over with a girlfriend? My mother said, your father likes everybody home for dinner. Even when I was wrong, a grown woman, if she did not like something that I was doing for my children, she would say, well, your father thinks. And that's what I wanted to be, the ultimate authority. The whom, then, whom, there is none homer. <laughs> it's, it's what I really wanted to be. So when I was interviewing for position of father of trusted children, I did look for somebody who would be likely to let me take that position. I married this man because he was not people like us. And we turned from the altar and I began to try to make him into people like us. Because it never occurred to me that anybody would not want to be people like us. We were normal. Other people were more fun, but they weren't normal. <laughs> and his family, the first time I ever visited in their house, his sister hit him with a coffee pot. <laughs> she only did that because the person at whom she had any coffee pot got. <laughs> Things like that did not happen in my family, and I knew that he would be so grateful to me when he saw how well-ordered and smooth-run my family would be, that he would certainly, in his gratitude, let me do anything I wanted to do. One of the things, of course, I wanted to do was have children. I did that rather well. I, uh, at one time, I had six children and the oldest was not yet eight and they were all boys. Uh, I don't know how you would respond in a situation like that, but I have to tell you I did not have much chance to ask myself deep searching philosophical questions about whether or not I was happy. Mostly I wiped noses and washed socks and got through the day and every time it was quiet I fell asleep. <laughs> I fell asleep eating, I fell asleep standing up. If it was quiet, I went to sleep. Uh, the marriage was already in chaos, it was already in deep trouble, but we knew why. It was because both our families were close to us 
and life was very impossible with these people interfering in our life. And so we had a wonderful idea. My husband was going to be discharged from the service. They thought he had a trick meeting that made him fall down a lot. <laughs> and so he got a discharge from the service and we were determined to put miles between us and causes of our troubles, like our families. And so we bought a little newspaper in a town in New Mexico. I, I know you have them in Wyoming. I've seen them. You know, you go down, it's not even in the state, but it's a pretty good highway, and there's a sign, it says, yield ahead, and then in a little bit, there's a sign that says, resume speed, and that was it. <laughs> that was it. That was spring in New Mexico, in the northeast corner of New Mexico. We uh, operated a newspaper in that town. The newspaper came out on Thursday. Everybody in town had heard the news by Wednesday. They just bought the paper to see how much of what they heard we dared print. <laughs> my husband printed it. I wrote it. My husband printed it. The kids sold it on the street corner and we went broke anyway. And rather quickly. And so we needed to sell the newspaper and get out of Springer. But a wonderful event had happened in my life. I finally had a little girl. Uh, of course, if you have six children in eight years, you have to double up a little. And I had doubled up. I had twins. And on the twins' 13th birthday, I had a little girl. Little girls are very special, especially little children of the same sex children, I think, are always special. And it, I had waited a long time for her, and she was very special to me, very precious. The twins also gave me a present about their 13th birthday. They began to drink. Uh, maybe you think that would be a disaster in a family which is already in acute chaos. I have to tell you, in our family, it was a great relief because we knew we were miserable, and we did not know why. But now we had someone who was to blame, and we did. We explained to them that their behavior was the cause of everything that was wrong in our family. It was very easy to do that. We said, no wonder that your younger brothers are not getting good grades in school. They are so upset about your drinking. It's no wonder that your father is because he's so worried about your drinking. It's no wonder that I haven't had a promotion in three years. I'm just frantic about your drinking. If you would just stop drinking, everything would straighten out. Now, everything wasn't straight when they started drinking, so I don't know exactly how we had reached this conclusion, but that's what we believe. Um, we moved up to Denver, and we had some excuse for the twins to drink because their high school class in Denver was bigger than the population of the town that they had just left. And of course, one of the good things about their alcoholism is it happens to be that that's one of the diseases I know how to cure. <laughs> I grew up in a family that knew how to drink. Now, I know that there are qualified physicians who believe that Alcoholism is caused by a shortage of value in the bloodstream. But I knew that that was not the case. I knew that alcoholism was caused by a lack of education. 
and that all they needed was to be taught how to drink. And so I began to teach them how to drink. We had very seldom had liquor in the house. It had not been a good idea in previous years, and there had seldom been liquor in the house, but I didn't see that this was a problem. I knew that I could teach the twins to drink. And so I bought white wine and explained to them that white wine enhances the taste of fish, whereas red wine goes better with meat. Well, the twins learned to drink white wine with fish and without fish. <laughs> I, uh, I, I had a, new, a better idea that there were only teenagers, little kids, you understand, and they don't have very much money, so I thought that I would teach them to drink the, and appreciate the taste of the very best alcohol. And of course, they wouldn't be able to afford enough to get drunk. Does this sound logical to you? <laughs> I bought the proper glasses and the very best French brandy. I taught them to warm the glass and hold it properly in their hand, turning it to keep it at the proper temperature, the temperature of their skin, the proper temperature to, to sip on this. I told them that it should take an hour and a half to drink an ounce and a half. <laughs> um, if you have, if you're new and now and on, and you have someone in your house who is very concerned about turning his glass to maintain the proper temperature, and who is taking an hour and a half for an ounce and a half. I don't know what's wrong at your house, but you don't have to come to these meetings and do all this. <laughs> the the kids, they used to call me at work, and they would say, we've got it at the right temperature, but we're having a hard time with having it trickle slowly down our throat. <laughs> Don't you get another bottle? <laughs> I don't advise teaching alcoholics to drink. It's frustrating and expensive. <laughs> well, we moved to Denver and it began to be obvious that this little exercise was not going to work well. I knew it was only because they were not cooperative. I still believe that Anybody could be taught to drink, but I was getting a little sick of this, and so I made a new suggestion. I suggested you will either bring home good grades, season up, or you will bring home your enlistment papers. At that time, the Navy had a thing called a kitty cruise, and you could go in at 16 and come out, I think, at 20 and get your high school diploma while you're in the service. It was called a kitty cruise, and I shortly had a couple of kitties cruising in the South Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> One of the twins did complete his enlistment, although they refused to let him brim. Uh, the other one didn't do quite that well, and I got a letter from uh, his commanding officer that said, well, it said a whole lot of stuff, but in essence it said, Bernie is too drunk to be a drunken sailor. 
was slightly horrified by it. That basically it said that they didn't mind that he drank, it was his behavior when he drank that they objected to, and that was my objection too, that part of it made sense. But I didn't know what to do, and Dennis said he didn't want to come out of the service. So I did what any right-thinking American mother would do. I wrote to my congressman. I probably wrote to your congressman. <laughs> I come from a very politically active family, and I knew senators and congressmen from many states, and I wrote to all of them, and they all wrote back. You know how politicians write? It's got like two, two pages, single space, and it says no. <laughs> well... That's what I got. So I took the next reasonable and logical step. I called the president. <laughs> you may think that's difficult to do, but it isn't. It's a listed number. You can direct dial the White House. Would you think that maybe there were... Now, I'm not calling the Oval Office, you understand. I'm calling the president's house. It's his home, where it is. You maybe anything, but would you expect a switchboard? I didn't. And I'll tell you, the woman on that switchboard is cold. <laughs> it is not possible. And I'm good. And it's not possible to get by her. I thought maybe I'd get Lady Bird and she'd say, what do you mean about walking the dog, honey? I'll just have to take care of it so you can get in. <laughs> I never got past the switchboard, and I was truly desperate. But there was, we were by this time living in Aurora, and there was a little weekly newspaper in Aurora, had a little ad on the back of it, and said, is there a problem of alcoholism in your life? If so, call this number. Well, I was pretty desperate. I mean, the president won't talk to me, Congress won't talk to me. I I have absolutely nothing to do and I'm terrified. What am I going to do with this drunk when he gets home and sets a bad example for his family and his younger brothers all end up in prison because he's coming home and show them how to be drunk and disorderly and horrible. <laughs> so I called the number and I got a man who said his name and then he said, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I was, I was just I can't tell you how taken aback I was because absolutely that has to be one of the secrets that you never tell anybody. You don't walk up to strangers and say, Hi, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> it's just not done. But I had to talk to somebody and I tried to talk to him. He was not as easy as you might think to talk to this man. I explained to him that I had a perfectly good government-certified alcoholic, and I wanted him to come get him. <laughs> I had read another article that said a new, a newly sober alcoholic was like a new baby. It couldn't be left alone for a minute. And I explained that I worked 3 to 11, and my husband needs work days, and we only needed somebody from AA for a couple hours so we could get some sleep. <laughs> and he said, we don't do that. And he said, did Bernie tell you to call? And I said, no, he's a really wily little alcoholic. We have to develop a strategy so you can catch him at the airport. <laughs> and he said, we don't 
do that. We were in a little discussion. I am not a shy and retiring person, and we had a little discussion. And I explained to him that if they didn't do that, it was damn well time they started. <laughs> I had perfectly good alcoholic, and he wouldn't take him. <laughs> we had some discussion about that, and in the course of that discussion, he said to me, to me, perhaps you're sick. <laughs> I said, excuse me? <laughs> I am a person here who is employed on a regular basis, does not sit and change jobs. I am the person who holds this family together, who pays the bills in this household, who prepares the meals, who does everything that needs to be done, why would you think I am sick? <laughs> but I thought back over the conversation, just quickly reviewing it in my mind, and I understood what was happening here. I understood that he thought I was lying, that I was the alcoholic. And he did say he would have his wife talk to me, and that clarified it for me completely, because I knew that He's a man, and I'm a woman, and at that time a much younger woman, and that uh, he certainly is not going to come out to my house and search me for the bottom. He's going to send a woman for the search. <laughs> but I was in real trouble here, because I had taken up 25, 30, maybe 40 minutes of this man's time, and time is as valuable as money, and I am now beholden. I've got to let him get his revenge on me. I am indebted. I am beholden. So I agreed that I would let his wife come out. And I was in some terror. I could visualize the big white station wagon with the red sign on it that said Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> but I had to at least let her call because I was beholden. And she did call me, and for reasons that I at that time did not understand, I talked to her. Now I talked to everybody. I said, how about them Broncos? Did <laughs> the wind ever stop blowing in Wyoming? And all kinds of stuff like that, but I talked to her. That's different. I told her that I was afraid in my house that I was afraid that my children were all going to grow up and and I would be lucky if I could keep them out of jail long enough for them to be eligible for the penitentiary because they were all just wild, horrible little kids and, and I was afraid and I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to cope and I told her that and I could hear the trap spring in the background because now I am really indebted. And she said I should go to a meeting and I agreed, what else could I do? I owed it to her, and I figured they'd give her a silver teapot or a <laughs> or whatever they give the people who bring in the most <laughs> And that is how I arrived in the room with the baby with the indestructible purple hair <laughs> and the warm heart and the love. And my son arrived back home 
and agreed to go to AA. I jumped at that. I thought that was the best news. Listen, I had a little party. I invited five men to our house. I mean, I didn't want to be pushy, but these were the five finest AAs I've met today when he got home, and I invited him to the house so he could select a sponsor from among them. <laughs> Actually, I invited seven, but two of them saw the trap. <laughs> I didn't want to be pushy. But he was very lucky. I had had some surgery, and I was off work. So I was able to take him to lots of meetings and explain to him what they were about. Getting <laughs> the elbow in the ribs, when they said things that particularly applied to him and translate for him any message that might have been over his head. <laughs> he was very fortunate. He was very fortunate. He wanted sobriety so much that he got it anyway. <laughs> but Bernie got something something besides sobriety, something more than and different than sobriety. Sobriety is the absence of alcohol circulating in the bloodstream. What Bernie got was not an absence, it was a presence. It was something added and not something taken away. It was a sense of peace with himself. It was a sense of spirituality. I'm not saying that he became a saint in 30 trips to AA, but things began to change and it was possible in a matter of a few weeks or a few months to see the change. And I desperately wanted that. Whatever that was, it looked like peace to me, and I wanted it. And I kept asking him how to get it, and he finally told me. He said, you either have to go to Al-Anon or drink more. <laughs> I'm going to keep to drink more. So I went back to Al-Anon. At that time, in those groups, we appointed temporary sponsors for people like me who didn't have enough sense to pick a sponsor, I guess. I didn't know she was temporary. I thought she was from the central office in New York and she was there to keep me from doing anything that would embarrass the group. <laughs> he used to call me up and say, what are you doing and stop it? <laughs> I went to a meeting on sponsorship very, not very long ago and I heard sponsors described as great hovering paternal birds with the little chicks under their wings safe from the storm. I want you to know that'll be like to pet me to death. Me <laughs> 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 and Bernie both talked about doing steps. And somebody gave me a set of the steps. Probably she did. And I took them home and looked them over and I decided I would do them. Well, I would do the ones that applied to me. Uh, I thought four, five, and twelve. I hear you have people with two steps, and we have the, the Al-Anon waltz, the one, two, three, but I wasn't going to do those. I didn't believe in God, so I couldn't do any of the ones that talked about God or a higher power. But it seemed to me that if I wrote my autobiography and took it to a sponsor, she could correct it. He would look at it the way he could look at an arithmetic paper, 
and she would say, no, no, just here is where you made the mistake, this is what you did wrong, just here, and she would look at mine and she would say, well, born in New England, too late to fix that. Um, not a good husband, get a divorce. Lot of kids, give him some of them. <laughs> and she would fix. She would show me how to fix my life. She would fix my paper so I would understand the mistakes that I had made. I wrote my first step. I wish that I could have brought it to you. It was a wonderful fourth step. It was corrected for punctuation, indentation, and capitalization. It was an A paper in any college in the United States. It may not have been a fourth step, but it was an A paper. I called her, and she lied to me. She's the only person in Al-Anon that ever lied to me. She called, at least it seems to me that it was a lie by implication. I said, I just finished my fourth step. Can I come over and sit step it? And she said yes. Now, doesn't that imply that she will indeed correct my fourth step and we'll get on with it? I took it to her house and she put it down on the table and she said, how did you get to the fourth step? And I said, I didn't get there. I started there. She said, they need them for people like you who don't know where to start. I said, excuse me. I am an educated woman with initials to write after my name and degrees, and I am not taking any crap off any high school dropout like you. And she agreed again. She said, you don't have to. She said, but before you go, I want to thank you for coming into my home and sharing with me the joy and peace that permeate your life. <laughs> and so I got to step one, which I really didn't have a bad time <laughs> with the first step because alcohol had always defeated me, whether I tried to do some subtle psychological things or whether I just butted it head on, it always won. So I knew I was powerless over alcohol and I was there because my life was unmanageable. The second step, on the other hand, was not that easy for me. I worked on it for quite a long time. My sponsor finally said, bring a list of the three most powerful things there are in the world. So I wrote wind and time and tide because man, mankind has no control over any of those today. And I wrote a little monograph for each one so she would know how thoughtful and smart I was. <laughs> well, I've made some progress. She didn't even look at the fourth step. She did it, look at the second step. She said, I'm relieved to see that your name is not on this list. <laughs> And so we got to work second step and third step and go along very slowly for a very long time. And I became interested in more Al-Anon than I got in one meeting a week, although that was a very fine meeting. When I got through my prejudice, it was a very fine meeting. And I began to go to more than one meeting a week. Every meeting that I went to, someone read, or I read perhaps, part of the Al-Anon Closing, which says, 
there are no sorrows, there is no sorrow too great to be lessened. And I thought that applied to newcomers. I thought that had nothing to do with me. I was in the program now, and life would be great, and from here on, there would be no bump. When my only daughter was 16, she called me at work one night to tell me that she was in the police station and that she had her third charges of rape and incest against her father. I went to the police station to be with her as soon as I could, and then I did what you taught me to do on this program. I called my sponsor. I had a new sponsor by this time. My first three sponsors moved out of state. <laughs> I had a new sponsor by this time, and I called her, and she said what sponsors say. She said, can you drive the car, or shall we come and get you? And I'm from New England. I can cope in emergencies. I can certainly, I can drive the car. I look good. I drove the car. I went to their house. My Al-Anon sponsor had a little AA husband who didn't know that he was supposed to stay out of Al-Anon affairs and just be an AA. He thought if the hand reached out, he was supposed to grab it. So he, you know how these little AA guys, huh? <laughs> you know, if, if you call an AA to come help you and you desperately and truly need help, if you're drowning in the middle of the ocean, they'll come with a pickup, with the fenders flapping on their little pickup as they're going so fast and then they'll row out into the ocean in the middle of a lightning storm to help you and they'll put an oar in the water for you to hold on to and then they'll read you the big book before they put you in the boat. This little Benny Rooster AA man did exactly that. They put my daughter to bed in the back bedroom of their house, and they loved her, and they petted her, and they told her that she was a good and worthwhile person, and they did everything for her that it's possible to do. And then they came in the kitchen to see me, and I was not good and lovable, and I was not about to be petted and loved by anybody. I was angry and almost violent, and that man had the nerve to read to me from the big book, the section that says, if you have a resentment against anyone, you must pray for him for two weeks. I did not consider it good news. <laughs> I was not able to do it. In a couple of days, and I knelt down beside my bed, and I said, God damn him, and I never meant a prayer more than I meant that. That is exactly what I wanted to have happen. I could not do that. But you never leave me alone on this program. You never say, well, this is the lesson, go do it. You come and you stay with me and you help me and you guide me and you show me how to do that. And they did that. They came to my house. They said, this is insanity. And I said, I know it's insanity because that much rage is insanity because this is if, if it's self-destructive, it's insane. And so we went back to my old nemesis, the second step, and had to look at that and say, a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. And then we had to look at six and seven, because we had, I had to decide, do I want to be restored to sanity? And no, I did not. I liked my rage. 
I endured my rage. It made me feel virtuous and good. It made me feel that I cared in my daughter's pain. It made me feel that I was discriminating enough to know that this was despicable conduct. It, I had a long time to work with six and seven to be willing to be restored to sanity. But people in this program stayed with me, helped me, told me what they had done. I don't do well with a printed lesson and a printed book, but if you tell me what you've done, I can try it. And that's what she did. People from all over this program came to my house, held my hand, and told me what they had done to become willing to be restored to sanity. And I began to be able to try it. And after a while, I was, in fact, able to do this. I divorced that man, of course. I certainly cannot bring that kind of behavior back into the house with my child. I divorced him in about three or four years after we had been divorced. The lung cancer, which had been there for a long time, became terminal, very virulent. And I was able to take him in the last days of his life. And I'm a nurse, and so the airlines would let me fly with him when he, they wouldn't let him fly by himself. And they would let me take him to California to see our son and our grandchildren, and I took him out and left him and went back in two weeks, brought him home, and within a week after I brought him home, he died. I knew I was not going to be sorry when he died, and I was very surprised to find out that I was. And I knew also that I could never love this man the way a man deserves to be loved by his wife, but I could love him as a fellow child of God and someone whose disease had put him in positions to act in ways that he never wanted to and never would have chosen to. I didn't learn that because I can't do that because I'm a good person or a strong person or a wise person. I can do that because I came here and you showed me the way to learn to do that and you shared with me what you knew about doing that. And you made it possible for me to do that. And for that, I thank you. My husband had, ex-husband had been dead only a few weeks when my youngest son, grew and sober, put a gun to his head and blew it off. I was angry. I am always angry first. It took me a long time on this program to find out that I am angry I tell myself I'm angry so I don't have to tell myself I'm afraid. But I was angry. What I felt was anger. What I saw was anger. And so I did what you taught me to do on this program. I called my sponsor who came and we talked and we talked and we talked. And we worked. And we went through again to the second step. We want to be restored to sanity. Yes, this time I did want to be restored to sanity. And we worked with that for quite a while. Unfortunately, Michael had been dead less than two years when his older brother put a rope around his neck and jumped to his death. I was in the Midwest. I did what you taught me to do here. I came home. I called my sponsor, and then I put down my suitcase. I did those in that order, and she cried with me. Not for me, but with me. And I said to her, when this is over, you and I are going to visit about the third step, because I am sick and tired of turning my will and my life over to the care of God and having him take my children. And she said, what sponsor says? 
want to say what they need to say because they live their lives so they can be God's mouth. And she said, God does not take your children, he receives your children. And that sentence is all the difference there is in the world. And I was able to work with that. And after that, we decided that we better work on my concept of God. And I discovered, now, I worked a fourth step on God. I didn't find out much about God, but I found out a lot about Russell. And I found out, among other things, that she was still thinking she could manage this. That if she did this step right, then God would give her everything she wanted. And I found out that I needed a tougher God than that. I needed the kind of God that walked a trail of tears with the Navajos. I needed the kind of God that went to the death chambers with his people and sustained them through what life dealt them and didn't act as an umbrella to save them from life. Because if you know, if, if that were true, if I could, if I could do something that would make everything come fine, then I would never need you, nor would you need me, and wouldn't that be a terrible world? And so we worked on a concept of God that I could live with, and that I could accept and go with. And then when I tell this story, it sounds like it's a very sad story. And it is not. This is, there are no sad Eleanor stories. Sometimes there are incomplete ones. This is a very happy story. I am a very happy Woman, I have all of you. I have the steps. I had, of course, the second son, the other twin who couldn't re-enlist in the Navy because of his drinking. Uh, he drank for a long time after his brother came into sobriety. Last week was his 12th sobriety anniversary. This in California. I got a card for his birthday. He sent me a card for his birthday. The front of the card says, Today I'm clean and sober. The, when it's open, the inside says, Yesterday you were kind and firm. There is a connection. I will always cherish that card. I have a second son with 20 years of sobriety. When it occurred to him that perhaps he really wasn't an alcoholic, he was just a wild kid. And besides, he had learned so much that he would now be able to drink socially. Well, he drank socially for a little while, and then he drank quite unsocially for a longer time. Uh, next month, the good Lord will, I will be a guest at his second second birthday. And we'll be very proud of that. I think it's hard to come back. But that's the story. My daughter, when I went back and looked over what had happened there and was able to put my own anger aside for a while, I had decided that I was absolutely blameless in that situation and I was not. And I had an amend to make. I had chosen to work 3 to 11 when I had enough seniority that I could have chosen to work strictly days. But I left a child in a situation that I could not stand to be in. And although I had been angry with God and said, what are you doing here? Why did this happen to my daughter? Why didn't you protect her? 
It was pointed out to be, I never did get these sweet little sponsors that just rock you to sleep. <laughs> I got the sponsor who said that I had a part in that and I should find it. And I did. And I saw that although I said, well, I let go and let God, there was a mechanism in place to protect my daughter. It was me. I was there. And let go and let God does not mean that I can abdicate any responsibility that rests heavily on me that I don't want to do. Let go and let God means that I do my share too. And so I had to go to my daughter and make the amends. She said, perhaps we can be friends. And so we have tried to be friends. Being friends with a daughter is a different proposition. As long as your mother can pontificate, you can say, really, isn't that lipstick a little bright? Isn't that skirt a little short? But friends don't do that. And friends say they're vulnerable. And so I have to let her see that I'm vulnerable. She treats me like a sponsor. She, I was in this terrible shape one night and I called her and said, I can't do this and it was a physical thing that I'm too small to do. I hate it. <laughs> she said, like a sponsor, Mom, take a nice hot bath. Go to bed, close the door so you can't see it, and I'll come over tomorrow and do it. <laughs> we, that's what friends do. We are friends. That's a strange feeling. I am friends with the two sons that I thrown out of my house, that I took to the Navy, that I taught to drink, that I did all kinds of things. Two that were not good things. We are friends today because we are all adults and because we're all in this program. It's a wonderful place to be. But something else, too, that this program has given me is the ability to just have fun. We do lots of let's all get together and talk about our issues, and isn't it all heavy? But you know, I sponsor some very insane people. God has not seen fit to restore them to sanity for any protracted periods of time. <laughs> They called me at 10 o'clock one, one Sunday night and said, you just remembered we forgot to celebrate Groundhog Day and we're all going out to celebrate Groundhog Day. Do you want to go? And of course I am so restored to Sunday that I immediately said, well, I get my clothes on, I'll go. <laughs> and we went to the home of one of them and we sort of did a little uh, biological adjustment on a teddy bear to make him look more like a groundhog, <laughs> and we gave him a birthday party. We, we toasted him in toast, and we had a very fine, silly time. We were just free. And that is the other thing that you have given me in this program that I so dearly cherish. You have given me a sense of how ridiculous not only the world is, but I am, and that I can have a good time and not defend my dignity, allow myself to be ridiculous. There is a prayer that I use that I like to close this with. It's attributed to Dotcom Show. The prayer is just this. For everything that has been, thank you. To everything that can be, yes, thank you. Thank you.